Today we're going to be in 1 Timothy 6. And the last time we spoke about, in chapter 5, respect, interpersonal relationships, how we should treat each other. We're all sinners, so sometimes it's uh, challenging, but you know, the, the Bible always gives guidance in, in human affairs. Um, today we're going to look at uh, the Apostle Paul writing his at the end of his letter, really, it's a wrap-up. We look at it in chapters and verses, but he pretty much wrote it all as one thought, and we can't forget that. So he's basically, towards the end of his letter, may, may not know if he's going to see Timothy again, may not know if he's going to speak wisdom into him, be a part of mentoring. So he pretty much wraps up the chapter. He covers the rest of the uh, topics. He also speaks about the legacy on the, the problem of slavery in the Roman Empire, uh, false doctrine, church leadership, and wealth. So starting with verse 1, he says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Now when we read that, it's confusing to us as Americans. So what I have to do is bring you back a few thousand years and help you understand Roman culture and then talk about American culture and where we were in our past. The Roman Empire, their slavery issue was a purely economic. It, there was no scruples, no morals to it, but it was just so the, the government could get what they needed. So in other words, the Roman Empire would attack outlying uh, bordering nations they would kill the fighting men and those that surrendered. If they looked like they were in good shape, they would take them captive, put them on the auctioning block, and they would be sold as a possession, as a slave. So this is what the Roman Empire did. At one point in the empire, there was about 50% of all the population were slaves. Now, because of that, they, they vastly outnumbered the soldiers. So because of that, they were very harsh on slaves. If anyone tried to leave uh, if they broke the law, if they tried to run away, they would be crucified. Uh, and, and the crucifixion would be an example for everyone to see, don't break Roman law. Now, in the United States, things were very different. In the United States, when slavery was around, half of the country, if not more, supported the abolition of slavery. You had your underground railroads, you had the president, you had lawmakers who were trying to do away with this scourge. There were no advocates in the Roman Empire. So let's see, understand the difference here. Many of the slaves became Christians. They had nothing to, to gain in this world. They accepted their lot. But when they became Christians, they became free. And there's a scripture I'm going to read about that. So the, the concern with the Holy Spirit leading the Apostle Paul was that the Christian legacy would not be a bloodbath. It would have been a one-sided bloodbath with the Christians being slaughtered, with uh, maybe innocent slaves being slaughtered. And what would have happened is the, the cause of the gospel would have died on the vine. So that's what you have going on there. History really paints a really good picture for us so we can get an understanding of what's being said here. Now, who better to discuss this injustice but the Apostle Paul? Here's a man who is beaten, arrested many times, imprisoned, and, and put on trial, and only to be executed at the end of his, at his last uh, imprisonment for doing nothing wrong. The point here is that the uh, servants or slaves, uh, and he's speaking to Christians, 
He's saying, serve honorably under your masters. Maybe, A, you can win them to Christ. And if they are one to Christ, maybe the relationship will be different. Now, let me explain this as well. On the other side, not in this book, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to Philemon, who's a slave owner. So here's the other side of the coin. And he tells them, I know your slave ran away. I know he did you wrong. He might have even stolen from him. He runs into the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul brings him to the Lord. He becomes a Christian. And he sends a letter to Philemon saying, Onesimus, receive him back as a brother. Don't treat him that way anymore. And if he's harmed you or done anything wrong, put it to my account. I'll pay for it. So you see both sides to this coin. See, Christianity gave these people hope. Now, I don't know, some of you may be shocked, but do you realize that slavery exists today? It doesn't exist in our country. I don't think it exists in Europe. But there are other countries where men are still enslaving other men. So it's a, it's a hard thing. However, this is the hope that's given to somebody who has nothing really to look forward to in this life. They have the whole afterlife. In 1 Corinthians 7.22, the Apostle Paul says, He who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Spiritually. Now it gets better. He says, He who is called while free... Well, that would be me and probably all of you, is Christ's slave. Now, as American Christians, sometimes we lose sight of this. I don't want to be in bondage to another man because men are cruel. Men are prejudiced. Men are mean. Men are self-centered. But I will tell you this. I've given my life, and I still have a lot more work to do, to my Lord as his slave. What is it, Lord? You want me to leave my job? Okay. What is it, Lord? What, what can I do? How can I serve you? And I think as American Christians, we need to understand that attitude. So we, we see these metaphors here. I want to read another scripture to you, Philippians 4, a few verses, starting with verse 11. And again, he's appealing to these Christian servants or slaves. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So here's a man who practiced what he preached. Here's a man who was in bondage. Here's a man who was treated unjustly, telling everyone else in that situation to be content in all things. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And this brings me to another point is I often say, or I often hear, excuse me, that when something good happens in a person's life, they say God is good. But do you realize that God is good when you, the doctor tells you that you have some incurable disease? God is still good. When my wife and I, when we were starting out, barely struggling, you know, I, I would write the checks and I couldn't pay the bills until almost the last day because we didn't have enough money in the account. God was still good. There's an, uh, an elderly woman in our church, and it's so amazing because I put messages together and I hear people say things, and it just gives me confirmation. She's got trouble with two knees, has difficult getting here, struggles to get into this church every Sunday. And she's going for a surgery on Tuesday, and she said, God is good. And I'm like, praise the Lord, sister. She gets what it means. He is good through all circumstances. 
Now, some have taken this scripture and said, well, we don't have slavery here. Let's look at the employer-employee relationship. And I would just say this. If, if we did that, it might be a little bit of a stretch. Christians should be model employees. We all have a boss. We all have someone we need to answer to. And if we own our own company, we answer to the Lord. So are we those model employees? I will tell you this. You have a church administrator. She's probably going to give me a hard time when she hears this. But there's times I've got to tell her, Christine, go home. You know what I'm saying? Any issue, she'll come here on her day off. It's not because she's trying to impress me. It's because she loves what she does. She loves the Lord, and she loves this church. So as believers, the bottom line is, whatever state we're in, we shouldn't be lazy. We shouldn't be trying to cut corners. Because what we're doing is we're besmirching Christ's name when we do that. So I tell you, the scripture is great application for everything. Verse 3, going back to 1 Timothy. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words which come from envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourselves." Again, in this wrap-up, what is he referring to? Basically everything he said, notwithstanding all the previous teachings. And he doesn't have very nice things to say about those who don't run ministries or um, you know, quasi-spiritual activities or leadership in the church without using God's word as a foundation. In Isaiah 8.20, uh, and there's a contextual issue here, but he says, if they aren't speaking God's word, there is no light in them. No light, no truth. He says they're proud, but knowing nothing. Arrogant with nothing to back it. Now, I, I hope that he came to the Lord in his senses in his last days, but Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist who died not that long ago, I liked him. <laughs> you know, um, He was arrogant, but he didn't know nothing. The guy was very smart. Uh, he was a very clever debater. And a lot of, he, made a, he made friends with a lot of pastors. However, what's really worse is somebody who's arrogant, who's puffed up, but they really don't know anything. But they try to, through smoke and mirrors, they try to present themselves as something, but they're really nothing. You know, they're trying to dupe others to think they are more than they really are. And this was what was happening to those that would enter the church. He says, obsessed with disputes over words. And the Greek word is lagomachia, where we get the English word lagomachy. Of course, we use that word every day, right? <laughs> lagomachy just means the same thing, nitpicking, just semantics, just picking the minutiae out of arguments and words. A person who just likes to argue. Now, I will tell you that if someone says to me, and I hear this all the time, Pastor Joe, I know this person, and they, whatever, and, and I want you to debate them. <laughs> How do I get put into these situations? But I don't mind doing it. However, I usually ask the person, are you looking for the truth or are you just looking for an argument? Because I really don't have time to argue. I've got a lot of things to do. However, if you're going to say to me, I have these five points that I can't reconcile with Christianity and the Bible, and I really am searching for the truth, I'll spend as much time with you as you need. But I'm not into the whole argument scene, although it may seem like it. You know, every once in a while, somebody will blow into the church with an agenda. 
They'll look at the church, they'll look at the body, and they'll come in with these just ridiculous doctrines that they just want to start engaging people in an argument with. And this results in the following, envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men whose minds are corrupt and don't have the truth. Now, I want to focus on two points. Okay, number one, envy or jealousy. It's called the green-eyed monster for a reason. This is a person who, they're not at peace with, with what God has given them. They're not at peace with the path in their life. So they look at others. Now remember, this is in the framework, in the context of the church. They may come into the church, they may look at the pulpit, they may look at the pastor, and there may be a jealousy. Well, I'd like to do that. And they kind of get caught up in the, the supposed glorification of what goes on up here. What they don't realize is being a pastor is a lot of hard work. So this jealousy issue drives them to this greatness, which they're trying to achieve. The second one is evil suspicions or sur surmising. Did you ever meet a person who just, they come into the church and they just always want to argue about Christianity? However, they want to say that, well, there's these things you don't know about. There's these things, books you haven't read. There's this doctrine out there that Pastor Joe is not telling you about. Everything's a conspiracy. And usually how they get their followings is to whisper in people's ears, and we're going to cover that in 2 Timothy, the itching ears. Oh, wow, you, I never heard that. Tell me more about it. You can ask me about it. We'll talk about it. I've read the pseudepigrapha books. I've read the apocrypha, all that stuff. Um, there's nothing new in there. And, and even if it was true, it doesn't take away from the gospel message. However, they'll, they'll get a following over these ridiculous doctrines. You haven't heard this. Yeah, of course you haven't heard it because it's ridiculous. You know what I'm saying? So the evil surmisings and suspicions. The second point here is that godliness is a means of gain for some, and that's in a temporal sense. Now, he starts to make the transition from um, false teachings to false teachings that have to do with money. So false teachers, a lot of times, they'll come in, their heart really isn't for the Lord. What they'll start to do is do things so that maybe they can get some financial gain out of it, some notoriety, some fame, uh, so they can elevate themselves. Right, so here's, you see the transition here. So godliness is a means of gain. The word gain is to just gain temporal things out of the things of the Lord, which really you shouldn't be doing. Now, there have been ungodly doctrines that are made out of this. And you've heard of the prosperity gospel, the name it and claim itters. You know, even the secret. Oh, the secret. You know, positive confession. If you just believe and you just keep thinking and meditating every day that you're going to be rich and you're going to get that Mercedes, one day you're going to get it. Look, there's better things you could be meditating on. So this positive confession, really what it is, is it's all about you. This is your moment to make it big. And if you follow these groups, the only ones who often make it big are the ones who are collecting all the money. Okay? And then some will try to make their splash. They'll go back and forth from Christianity to the world. And they'll compromise their values, whatever it takes, just to make themselves elevated. Remember, three things are intertwined. Attitude, behavior, and doctrine. They all work together. And some are better about uh, massaging or, or hiding the attitude part of it. The third point, he says, is withdraw yourself from them. Now, I have a Facebook account, and if you probably ask me... Can I be your friend? <laughs> I would. But there are times, and I'll tell you, I would be quicker to delete someone who calls themselves a Christian and has these weird doctrines, and I've done it before and people get mad at me, oh well, than somebody who's an unbeliever. You see, I have a lot of friends who don't know the Lord, and I'm trying to bring them to Christ. And what I want them to see is, is 
is really what we represent. And I just have a hard time with believers who try to be above the fray and stand out and just come up with weird stuff. You know what I'm saying? So the Apostle Paul says, if it's that bad and if it's away from God's word, he says, withdraw yourself. And that might mean deleting a friend or two on Facebook, if, if the case may be. Verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. So what is real gain? So the Apostle Paul says, hey, it isn't this money thing. It isn't about getting rich. So what is the answer? What is gain? Well, first of all, it's not off the back of Jesus Christ. It's not to get wealthy just because you're going to use the Lord to do it. That's wrong. But it's godliness with contentment. And I just would say on a lesser scale, I don't know any false teachers in here, but on a lesser scale, to apply it to our lives, how are we looking to be content in our lives? What to us is contentment? Are we looking to see what our neighbors have? You see, that's a rat race that never ends. Because there's always going to be somebody you know that's putting in the pool. There's always going to be somebody you know that's buying the nicer car or buying the nicer house or putting an addition on it. Where does it end? Well, I have to get a promotion, and I was in this job longer than him, so I should be promoted before. It just doesn't end. It's a rat race. So where is contentment? Stop striving for the big payout. Because in this economy, it's probably not going to happen. I will tell you this, that when we're constantly yearning for contentment through stuff, it becomes a prison. We put ourselves behind bars. And the bricks and the mortar and the bars are our own, our own making. So just keep that in mind. He says, we brought, this is a good thing to keep us in, in a proper perspective. We brought nothing into this world and can take nothing out. Now, if we live long enough, we'll probably leave the way we came. Bald, naked, and chubby. It's just the way it is. But according to this, are we content with food, clothing, and shelter? I have to tell you, sometimes in my prayer life, when I lay down at night, and, and I, I, sometimes I'm like, boy, Lord, you, you've really just had a, your hand on my life, my, my family, this, this church, and, and I'm like, I just lay there sometimes. I'm like, Lord, please grant me another day. Please grant. Do we really think that God owes us to wake up tomorrow morning? He doesn't. Every day is a gift. Somebody said that to me walking into church today. Every day is a gift, an opportunity. And I, I just am so thankful, and out of my thankfulness, I say, Lord, just please, can I have another day with my family and, and other believers and such? It's a blessing. Because unfortunately, I've seen in my other profession, my secular job, how many people's lives get cut short through natural disasters, through lightning strikes, through falling off a ladder, through cancer, through car wrecks. I mean, it, it, there's so many perils out there. Uh, that can get us. But let me just say this. I lost my place. <laughs> Give me a second here. <laughs> what is real gain? What is real fulfillment? Keeps me, keeps me humble. Um, godliness and contentment. And what, what he means by that is this word godliness is an interesting word, and I've studied it, and I've looked at it, and I, what is this godliness concept? What it is, is the ability that God gives us to be like him. Now, not to be gods. That's false doctrine. 
He gives us the ability to radiate him. Now, some, sometimes we say reflect, and that's a good word, but I think radiate is better because radiation, and I just love chemistry and all that stuff, you know, it starts from the inside and it, and, it, and it pushes to the outside. If we have Christ and the Holy Spirit in our lives, we radiate and people feel the warmth. They see the light and they feel the warmth. So godliness truly is contentment because how great is it to be a part of, listen, we could be rich, we could be promoted, and then we can live our whole lives and say, gee, I lived my whole life about myself. And some people have mused that at the end of their lives. But how awesome would it be to be, to be like God, to, to radiate him, and to bring people into the kingdom who would otherwise be judged and damned? I think that heaven is going to blow our doors off, guys, brothers and sisters. I think it's going to be excellent. Verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So Jesus said in the Gospels, you'll always have the poor. Now, we also know that we'll always have the rich. It's just simple economics. And neither is inherently good or bad. But let's look at this. It's the desire to be rich. God doesn't condemn rich people. It's the desire for riches. And you don't even have to be rich to desire those riches. Now, he says it's a temptation and a snare. And that word snare is a trap. And that word is also used for when someone is trapping an animal. The animal sees the trap, doesn't really understand it. But they do see the bait. And they focus in on the bait. And once they take that bait... The trap snaps uh, closed. And it, it's really sad to see some of these traps, the bear traps and, and things that animals get caught in. Um, and they're nasty. And I think Paul may have even had that in mind when he wrote this. This is a trap. The result is drowning men in, per, in perdition and destruction into ruin. And the word drown is buthidzo, where we get in the English the prefix bathy, which means deep. So I can only look at it like this. When you look at, when you ever see water in the sunlight and it's, it's mesmerizing, you know, the sun dances across the water as beautiful reflection, and you get mesmerized by that water. And you may look at that water, and let's say that water are those riches. It looks really good. It looks really refreshing. But what you don't know is underneath, there's a strong undertow, and there's also jagged rocks. And if you get too close to that beautiful, sparkling water and you get into it, it might suck you in. It might pull you under. It may destroy you. And now you're destroyed by the very thing that mesmerized you. So be careful about having big eyes, because that's what it will do. Is it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are three things that will really hurt us. So be careful what we wish for, because we just might get it. Verse 9, desire in verse 10, he says, the love of money. And the word root is rizzo, where we get the word rhizome from in the English, the root. It's the root of all evil, not just avarice, not just money hungry. There's other things that go with this. And I look at the, um, the pornography culture. You know, the United States is a multi-billion, well, pornography itself is, a, all the things that I've read is a multi-billion dollar industry. Now, what's interesting here is that we don't just make it and export it, we import it. It's bad enough that we make it here, but we're not satisfied with that. We've got to get it from Europe and other countries as well. So what is the motivating factor for that? Money. Because you can tap into someone's depraved desires and make a fortune over this stuff. It's all about money. The same thing with the drug culture. We make drugs here. We make methamphetamine, illegal drugs. 
We probably even overprescribe a lot of drugs in the United States, but we also import those drugs as well. There's a new drug that um, law enforcement briefing. This stuff is really nasty. It's a Russian designer drug. It's called crocodile. I don't, have, you, have you ever heard of this? With a K. And this stuff, when they inject it, over time, the flesh becomes gangrenous. And there's a picture of a woman in pain, obviously, and she's got her arm up, and you can see the bones exposed. The flesh is just literally coming off of her bones. And this is real stuff, nasty. But there's some sick people who want to make this stuff and send it into, and you know what they'll say? Ah, they're just throwaways anyway. They're just junkies. They're people that God loves. They're individuals. They have a soul. And they're being discarded like this because of money. So money, I can go on all day long about how money is a root of all kinds of evil. Taking advantage of someone else that's made in God's image. It's disgusting. You know how I feel about that, right? I think by now. He says, they've strayed from the faith and were pierced with many sorrows. The Apostle Paul, I think, he uses imagery, and I believe that he chooses his words carefully under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The word for pierced means to be run through, like with a sword or an arrow. I'm a big history buff. I um, remember the Greek standoff, not that I was there, Uh, (laughs) 400... 480 B.C., the Thermopylae Pass, and the Greeks were holding back the Persian Empire, which really changed the face of democracy for all of history, including us. And the, um, there was a few hundred thousand uh, Persians, the, the numbers vary, but there were 300 Spartans that held their ground and sent the Greeks home. Spartans weren't really good guys. They were really bad people, if you study their culture. But what they did was very heroic. And they, in the Thermopylae Pass, they held off the Persians. And they fought valiantly, and they got cut, and they got wounded. But it wasn't until the end of the battle, when the Persians were able to surround them, and with their archers, they just rained down hundreds of thousands of arrows and ran them through. And that's what killed the Greeks. So here's this picture of being run through. And the Bible tells us that the enemy, Satan, shoots fiery darts at us as believers. And we need to have our spiritual armor on to to repel these fiery darts. Not only are they darts and they're sharp, but they have fire attached to them. Again, a very uh, typical uh, ancient warfare tactic. And if we don't have the proper spiritual armor on, we're just going to be run through. And I wonder if there's another thing that the Apostle Paul was referring to, that in the Old Testament, if a slave didn't want to go free, what they would do is they would allow their master to take an awl and run it through their ear and make this tremendous hole. And that would signify that they would want to stay in slavery to this master. So you see so much imagery about being run through. It's important to look at. We need to not allow ourselves to be run through spiritually. I would say this to leaders and teachers. If you desire money, you're dead before you start. If your desire is for the things of the Lord, but is motivated by money, heed the Apostle Paul's words. And for the average Christian, sometimes you can allow the the uh, fruitfulness of God's word to be choked by the thorns. And what's interesting, you keep seeing this image. The thorns are pointy and pokey. And what they do is they strangulate this beautiful plant that starts with the word of God and it, it, it destroys it and chokes it out. It's not a good thing. So I, I, there's, so many, there's so much imagery here. And I just would ask today, brothers and sisters, what today is starting to pierce through your spiritual armor? How many of you are uncritical? 
You're looking down and there's a few holes. You're looking down and there's a few arrows. What are we a slave of? When is enough enough? You know, in the Christian culture in America, it's difficult because there's so much, you know, we really live better than probably 85% of the world's population and it's still never enough for us. See, believers sometimes always cry in poverty, but they're always a slave to their expensive vacations and their, their educational pursuits and, uh, you know, their, their new cars or whatever it is. That's all they look for. Their life events go from a materialistic event to a... And these things are not bad in and of this, themselves, but it's the desire, it's the love of these things that, that takes us and takes our focus off the Lord. That's the problem. And we can never say that enough in American culture. Verse 11, but you, O man of God, but you be different. Flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to be honor and everlasting power. Amen. But you, O man of God, but you, O woman of God, in great contrast to what we spoke about with these false believers and these false teachers, these false brethren, we need to be different. There needs to be a discernible difference between us and the behavior that they're uh, involved in. Number one, righteousness and godliness. There's a huge movement in the church at large to cheapen God's holiness and I think it's a bad philosophy. What they want to do is they want the whole world, everyone in any culture, to be attracted to Christianity. So what they do is they cheapen it. They make it, it, should, it is relatable, but they make it so relatable that it's, it's, it's disrespected. Jesus Christ didn't lower himself when he hung out with certain people. He, was, he, was, he shined his light on them. He didn't let them influence him. Righteousness and godliness are important. Holiness is what we're called to. You know, the world, if I could use an illustration, the world checks us out. You call yourself a Christian at your workplace, they're going to be watching you. They're not going to tell you that, but they're going to be checking you out. You go into school, they're going to be checking you out. And this is what the world does. The world looks us up and down, walks around us, checks us out, listens to us talk, watches what we do. And if the world looks at us and says... I've come to the conclusion, you look just like me. So you have Jesus, I don't. So what? You're the same as me. You act like me, you behave like me, you talk like me. The world is watching. They're checking us out. So we need to be different. Not better than them, because we're not better than them. We're just saved by grace. But we need to radiate the power of Christ. There's a few other things here. Faith. Hebrews tells us that He who comes to God must believe that God is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We must believe that he can do these things. And love, love is the motivating factor. Why do we even bother? Because of love, because Christ loved us, 
And we know, we experience his love, and we want to love others enough to bring them to salvation. Patience, gentleness, and these are fruits of the Spirit. So the question is, what are we fleeing? And what are we pursuing? And are we doing it in the reverse order than what the Apostle Paul says? We need to stop for a moment and ask ourselves, what am I always chasing after? Something's got to come to your mind. What am I fleeing? What does the scripture say? Are they in harmony? He says, fight the good fight of faith. The word fight is agonizomai, where we get the word agonize from. Don't let anyone tell you when you become a Christian, everything becomes easy. That's a lie. It becomes more challenging, but it's far more rewarding. You now have purpose in your life. God looks at you and, and he has endowed you with his Holy Spirit. He endows you with spiritual gifts. He looks at us as, as, as individuals. He can hear our prayers individually. He has a relationship now with us. Right? So it's challenging, but it becomes more fulfilling. There's a purpose now. He says, lay hold, or the word is seize eternal life. Grab it, seize it, claim it. You want to claim something? Name it and claim it. It's, we're not talking about claiming money and cars. Claim, lay hold of eternal life. That's where it's at. Why would we as believers start grabbing temporal stuff? Wow, I became a Christian. I'm a spiritual being. Now let me grab all the stuff I can on this world. That doesn't make any sense. There's a different world that God is speaking of. And he says, you can be a part of it. Jesus says, lay hold of eternal things where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. Anything you could get here... It's perishable. And when we die and we go back to that state, we can't. The, the Egyptians tried it for 2,000 years. Their stuff's still in the tomb. They weren't able to take it with them. Seize eternal life. Lay hold of it. What are we seizing? Eternal life or this world's goods? Verse 13. He says, confessing the good confession as Jesus Christ confessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Now, this isn't confession as in police interrogation, right? This is confessing the truth about God, his nature, and his plan of salvation. Now, Jesus is our example. Why? Because when he stood before Pontius Pilate, he could have, he could have said, you know, Governor Pilate, I really don't want to be crucified. What do I have to say for you to let me go? I'll say it. He said, it's for this reason I have come into this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Yes, I am a king. Yes, I am who they say I am. He didn't, he didn't back off. And you know what? He didn't save his own skin. He saved ours. Because if Jesus saved his own skin, we'd be in a lot of trouble right now. So we see his confession, and we also make that good confession. You want to talk about positive confession? Let's take their terms and turn them on their ears. Positive confession. Oh, I want something. I want something. I want something. What are you, rubbing a bottle for a genie to come out? That's ridiculous. This is the true confession, and the word is homologia, which means same word. We say the same word what God does about sin. We say the same word that God says about judgment. We say the same word that God says about the way to salvation, homologia. It may not be popular. Your peers may think that you've, you've gone off the deep end, but we're saying the same word that God says. If they persecuted Christ, they will persecute us. Verse 14, 
He speaks about keeping this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appeareth. Now, Ephesians tells us a story about how Jesus presents us as his bride without spot or wrinkle. So if you think we're going to be perfect or I am, forget about it. It doesn't happen. The only way to do it is through Christ. So keep that in mind. 16, Christ who alone has immortality. See, he's the source. He is the source. How many of you remember in the 70s there was a bumper sticker that said, I found it? How many of you were around in the 70s? <laughs> I just found this out recently. That was an evangelistic campaign. As a kid, I would look at it and go, I found it. What did he find? You know what I'm saying? All these cars, they found something. But they found it. Everything that we're looking for in life that we erroneously try to fill with the things of the world, when we find salvation, we found it. It's good news. It's exciting. Right? Exclamation point. I'm just going to say this to you. He alone is the source of immortality. You want to live forever? I know the, a lot of the young culture are watching all these vampire movies. <laughs> What's the illusion? I've got to tell you, when I was a kid, I, mean, I don't know any better. I thought it was kind of neat myself. Live forever? What the, the illusion is that in these movies, they're all good-looking guys, all buff and pretty girls, and they, they stay the same for hundreds and hundreds of years. The, the attraction is, is immortality in a beautiful state, right? Let's face it. This is the real immortality. That stuff is fantasy. Those people in 20, 30 years are not going to look like that anymore, those actors and actresses. But the truth is that immortality, the source, is Jesus Christ. I'm immortal. I love that. I'm immortal. I'm, I'm going to die, but in, in less than a split second, I'm going to pass from one state into another. You want immortality? Here's the source. And this is the only way to get it. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. And he's the one who has the source of immortality. So if you don't know the Lord today and you came into this church, and besides, uh, besides from seeing a hyperactive pastor, the truth is that God offers salvation to you freely, no strings attached. We want to tell you more. We want to encourage you. We really don't want anything from you, though. You understand? We're not going to send anything to your house. There's no strings attached. Jesus said to his disciples, I've given stuff to you freely. All this stuff has been given freely. Now go and give it to others freely. No charge. Salvation is beautiful. Why wouldn't we do it? I look back at my life. You know, I've been a, a Christian less years than I've been an unbeliever. At some point in my life, it'll be 50-50 if I live long enough. Why didn't I do it sooner? I still ask myself that question. Um, well, verse 17. He says, Command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. You see the play on words there. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on, they may lay hold on eternal life. Generous, wealthy, those who were wealthy and generous are such a blessing. They're so philanthropic. And they're such a blessing to the church when they support uh, the things, missionaries, and, and the furthering of the gospel. However, stingy wealthy are a scourge, not only to Christianity, but to mankind in general. I got to tell you this, and I don't know why I thought of this, but I've never really been a waiter. It really bothers me when wealthy people come in 
and they don't tip the wait staff. I don't know why that bothers me. It's a weird thing. I mean, go make your own food at home. You know, don't go out to the restaurant. So a stingy, wealthy, or a scourge, they just hold on and they, and they hoard and they hoard. And like the rich fool, I think it was in Luke's gospel, God says to him, you fool. You kept storing up and storing up and storing up. Tonight, your life is required of you. What are you going to do with all that money? Who's going to get it? Doesn't make sense. The hoarding mentality. Jesus said, what is it profit if a man gains the whole world but loses his own soul? I just want to give you a quick, before we close, we're going to close up in a minute. Um, you remember the story of Zacchaeus and remember the story of the rich young ruler. The, Zacchaeus was a guy who was a crook and he, was, he got wealthy by being a crook. And he runs into Jesus and he's convicted and he changes his life and he says, Lord, I'll tell you right now, I'm going to give everything back that I've ripped people off for and then restitution, I'm going to give to the poor. He didn't say, I'm going to give away all my stuff. He just was so cut to the heart. That's true repentance. His actions followed his words. Now, the rich young ruler came to Christ, and Jesus said to him, you got to sell everything. Give it all to the poor and follow me. How unfair of Jesus. How could he have a double standard? I'll tell you why. Because he knew their hearts. The rich young ruler's riches were killing him spiritually. Zacchaeus understood true repentance, and whatever he had left, he had left. But this is what he was determined to do out of his own heart. So it's a heart issue. So again, we go back to the whole, even the class warfare argument going on in our our nation. We don't hate the rich. The rich are not bad. A lot of the rich make jobs. A lot of the rich are very benevolent. Uh, But it's this desire and the love for the money. That's the root of the problem. Verse 20 and 21. Oh, Timothy. Guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and vain babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge or science. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. The faith, grace be with you. Now, there was an idea back then, as there is now, that certain scientific theories came up. And uh, they would, you know, secular people, some of them would try to throw these things out to try to discredit who God was. Maybe the Genesis account. And we've done many a time spoken about uh, the science in the Bible and all the things it speaks about before microscopes and uh, telescopes and things like that. And it's almost as if he knew that we were going to get this evolution theory that comes by. But here's a, I didn't write it, I think it's hysterical. Science keeps changing. Medical science keeps changing. You know, years ago they told you to do certain things medically that now we realize could kill us. So it keeps changing because we don't know everything. Check this out. Evolution. Here's science. The belief that there was nothing, and nothing happened to nothing, and then nothing magically exploded for no reason, creating everything, and then a bunch of everything magically rearranged itself for no reason whatsoever into self-replicating bits, which then turned into dinosaurs. Makes perfect sense. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, fight, charge, guard. These are heavy commands. Leadership is not for lightweights. Christianity isn't for lightweights. And even if we are lightweights, he can build courage in us. You know, he can put a heart of courage in us if that's what we're lacking. This letter is precisely why many churches have gone away from reading the scripture. It's difficult to teach. It's difficult to hear. And it's difficult to obey. 
Warren Wearsby, I love the old time preachers because they just have gumption. I love these guys. He, he mused. He said, if the United States military gave the effort towards World War II as Christians give in spiritual battle, we would have lost the war. <laughs> we don't come to church to be coddled. We come to church to get our marching orders from the Lord. And that encourages us because we're instilled with a sense of purpose. Now, let's understand this. When as a, an unbeliever, we read God's word, we come face to face with the fact that we've sinned and don't deserve heaven. And you know what God does for every problem? Here's the solution. My son. Really? Yeah. But, I, but I, I, don't worry about it. He, just believe in him. That's the solution. Everlasting life. Wow, I get that in grace. When we as Christians read God's word, which most of us are here, we come face to face with the fact that we can't obey any of this in our own strength. What's God's solution to the Christian? Here's my Holy Spirit. You can't do it in your strength, but he can empower you and help you to do it. A church without the Holy Spirit is a social club and nothing more. Listen, the handwriting is on the wall. American society and the economy may change. If you, if you listen to The Economist, the doom and gloomers, dramatically for the worse and not for the better. That's not good news. Fear and uncertainty will increase, probably in this country. The only true hope, not the politician's version of hope, the only true hope is found in God's word. And then for salvation, to acquiesce to growth. My prayer is that we step up to the plate to be used by God, so, so we can have purpose in this life that surpasses all others. Let's pray.